soon our podcast here will be on the social voice projects podcast network it'll be on our website so anyone can come and listen to these episodes that are really a showcase and celebration of the museum here i want to thank you so much michelle for uh, sitting in with me the guest host uh did you learn something how i do it because next time it's going to be you over here okay <laughs> god help us all <laughs> no this is fun isn't it yes this is it fun. is if you could well, talk. when you get me to talk about the museum, I, I don't shut up much. Well, well, there you go. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Rochester Area Heritage Society podcast. My name is Kevin Farkas, and today we are launching this podcast here at the Rochester Area Heritage Society with the director of the society, soon to be host of this podcast, Michelle Long. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you very much. Now, I'm just sitting in here getting this all launched, right? So one day you're going to be sitting on this side of the table, on this microphone. And you're going to be talking about all the wonderful things that you have here at the Heritage Museum and Model Railroad. Is that the official name of? The official name is the Rochester Area Heritage Society Museum and Model Railroad. You are correct. Okay. Whew, that's enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, what do you call it for short? The Rochester Heritage. Rochester Heritage. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll refer to it Rochester Heritage. And if you haven't been over here to this museum in this wonderful old high school, it is a real treasure. As a matter of fact, you have a little tagline which is a great place for history. I love that. And that's what we are about on this podcast and the other podcasts that we do as part of our local history podcast initiative. You know, we want to bring podcasting to these local organizations, these small town museums, these small town heritage societies that are in basements. They're on the top floors of old school buildings. They're every place you can imagine. They're usually run by a very small group of volunteers and they're open one or two days a week and they're operated on a shoestring budget. But these museums, heritage societies such as yours, Michelle, just wonderful, wonderful exhibits, wonderful history here, irreplaceable and priceless uh, information here, artifacts and so forth. So we are bringing podcasting to this space to re have a worldwide reach. You know, it's one thing to open your doors to the local public and people come by and they take tours and so forth. But with podcasting, we can have a worldwide wide reach because we are on the internet and it is amazing who we reach. I mean, our network has reached over 69 countries and we are in all listened to in all 50 states. Somebody in Thailand listens to our shows. I don't know anybody in Thailand, but somebody is a fan of ours. So that's a wonderful thing. So what we do with the podcast and the local history initiative is we reach the world and we, and we say to the public, hey, look what's here. Come see us here at these museums. Come support what we do because it's that important. As we always say, local history really, really matters. Now tell us about yourself, Michelle. Well, I lived in Beaver. I graduated from Beaver. I stayed in Beaver for five years after I got married and moved to Rochester in 1977. So I used to call myself an immigrant <laughs> from Beaver, but I've lived in Rochester longer now than I ever lived in Beaver, so now I feel that I am a Rochester person. My kids went to school here from kindergarten through high school. All my grandchildren have gone here, and I, you know, I still coach cheering, so I am a Rochester Ram. I guess I do bleed blue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, how did you get involved with the museum here? 
I've been interested in it for a long time, but it always seemed that the organization went from one group of people to another group of people to another, and it never went anywhere. And it, it, I hate to say this, but it just seemed that people were spending more time arguing and not getting along and worrying about who knew what, when, where, than to actually spearhead something and get the show on the road. So I kind of backed away for a little while and got involved in the reunion, the 125th reunion. For the community? For the school. For the school. Yes. And they were meeting at the library and they asked me to come. So we met there for a while and started talking and I asked them all about their interest in history and got a few people on board. We decided then that we were going to start fresh. We were going to start new. I didn't care who, what, where, anything about anything. We changed our name to the Rochester Heritage Society. We made up a set of bylaws. The first rule is you don't argue. We get along. So we became a nonprofit, and I'm quite proud that one of my board members and myself wrote, wrote the paperwork for the nonprofit. And we saved a lot of money by doing that ourselves. It was a feat, but we did it. Then our next problem was where do we go? We don't have any money, we can't afford rent. So I the, actually, the guy that used to work, he just retired from the borough. He said, um, let's talk to the borough. They have that hole upstairs up there. It's a mess, but let's talk. So we approached the borough, and they were kind enough. And I can't express how thankful I am. But they were kind enough to tell us that we could have the top floor for a museum with the condition of we take care of it. We clean it up and we take care of it. Well, that's a no-brainer. So, bing, bang, boom, we started. We got rid of 400 TVs, 500 computers, keyboards, monitors, dirt, grease, grime, you name it, we got it. And what year would this be? It was three and a half years ago, almost four. So, we're talking 2014. Wow. Yes. You guys have done an amazing job here. Yeah. So, yeah, and with a very limited amount of people, I might add. (laughs) There's only a handful of us, but we did it. We opened our first room, which is the vintage room, and I was tickled pink. Then my son decided that he was going to become involved. He wanted to do a model railroad. I said, I'll give you a room, a whole room. So that's what started the model railroad, and he has done. My husband does all the underwork that you really don't see, but the landscaping, the, the layout, itself my son and my daughter-in-law have done a tremendous job every tree on this thing has been handmade it there's nothing that's store-bought and it is quite remarkable but we're not talking about a model uh, scenery of uh, the north pole this is of the community correct which makes it very historical correct the time period is 1890 to 1920. So things that were here during that era are on the display. Most of the things aren't even here anymore. The only thing left is the brewery, which is the bowling alley right now down on the river. And it wasn't even completed till 1923. So on the layout, 
it is under construction. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a feat for all of us to do the research to find out exactly where these buildings were, exactly where they stood. So we use a lot of um, sandborn maps and, you know, just digging into pictures. And so, and that's how he has created this. So then, you know, then we decided, okay, Fry Glass was in Rochester. Hmm. Got my first piece of fry and I'm addicted. (laughs) So now we have an entire room dedicated to fry glass. So, you know, as we grow, and then we opened a a classroom about mm, six months ago, and it's a classroom and a sports room dedicated to Rochester. Well, that's very fitting. This is an old school and that's an old classroom with uh, the antique desks and and the memorabilia. Yes. Sure. Do you have people come and they say, oh, I remember sitting in desk. Yes. You do. Yes, I do. Yes, we actually have a chalkboard in there that um, anybody that graduated from Rochester, we ask them to sign the board with the year that they graduated on. And it's kind of fun because people will come in and see somebody on the board that they graduated with 50 years ago. Oh, and they say, oh, I know. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of fun. You know, it's it's unique. And we have yearbooks. And actually, our yearbooks, uh, about two years ago, the Oklahoma State Prison got a grant. And they were, they were doing yearbooks for libraries and historical places. And I was working at the school at the time. We, I sent them one book from every year from 1900 when the school was founded to present. And they paid for the shipping. And in probably six to seven months, they sent us back all of our books and DVDs. Mm. They're now online. So anybody that wants to search for their great-great-grandmother that graduated in 1910 can go right to the school's website and look. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it, it, it it's kind of a fun thing, but we have the yearbooks in paperback, or, you know, in, in, in that you can touch and feel here. Uh-huh. And we have a lot of memorabilia. I mean, you know, we have some famous people from Rochester. Lauren Williams was one of them. Lauren Williams yeah. is the Olympian. Yes. Yes, silver yes. medalist, I believe. Yes, yes. Yeah. She actually did both winter and summer Olympics. Oh, she really? did the bobsledding, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is, she's a tiny tiny little thing. I had all her sisters in cheering. And Lauren is the tiniest of them all. <laughs> sweet family, sweet kids. And you are a cheerleader coach. That's, yes, that's yes, yes, that, yes. Yeah. I always heard this rumor that Christina Aguilera is from Rochester she and is. spent time here. Really? Yes, 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 yes. yes. She, she was from Rochester. She moved away, I believe, when she was a sophomore, maybe a junior. But yes, she did live Actually, it was the house up behind where Rite Aid is in Rochester. I see. Mm-hmm. And for those who, who don't know Rochester, Pennsylvania, it is in the center of Beaver County, by and large. It is, right? For, fairly. It's, yes. It's called, even though Beaver's the county seat, Rochester is the hub. And if you picture a hub of a wagon wheel, that's why we are called the hub. We are the center of the county. It is right at the northernmost part of the Ohio River. When it comes from Pittsburgh from the south of here, it, it reaches this apex and then it turns south, heads down Ohio and, and down to the Mississippi. It has always been a very strategic transportation hub, business hub, a social hub. 
there were theaters back in the day, vaudeville theaters here, and everybody on the circuit would at least come to play Rochester. Absolutely. Right? And I had heard that people, as far as Newcastle and points above, would in the old canal days, would take evening excursion or day excursions down the Beaver River to Rochester, have dinner, maybe take in one of those shows, and then take a canal boat back to uh, north. Yes, yes, yes. And Junction Park actually was a big park. And at the time, it was kind of considered Rochester and not New Brighton. So there was a lot of people that came in by trolley, by boat, by, you know, so it, 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 the area itself was just uh, hopping all the time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. And one of the things that made Rochester really, really significant is fry glass. And this is an amazing part of industrial history of Rochester. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Fry Glass, uh, because you have an entire room here devoted to it? Yes. Well, H.C. Fry started out on the river with the Rochester Tumbler Company. And, uh, of course, between the floods and fires, he just said, okay, we need to leave the river. We need to be somewhere. So he bought property up in North Rochester, and that's where he decided he was going to build. He built this gigantic, I mean, it was, un, it was massive, fry glass. That's what he ended up calling this place was Fry Glass. But on Fry Glass property, he also had the Guaranteed Liquid Measure he owned. And the Guaranteed Liquid Measure Company were the cylinders that they were that were used in the gas pumps and the oil pumps. So he also owned that. Plus, he still kept the tumblers. So actually, it was three businesses in one. Um, he was known for his quality of glass. He brought glass cutters. He traveled all over the world to bring in the best glass cutters that he could get. He not only brought them over here, he brought their families here. He educated them. He built a school so that he could educate his own employees with English because most of them could not speak English. Um, They were the finest that he could get. Cut glass, etch glass. He didn't ship anything unless it was in a barrel that he made. So he even had a barrel shop. And what made fried glass so interesting and such high quality is where he was located, it was up on a hill. So he was able to get a draft in his ovens, which made the glass so crystal clear that people loved it. He originally was down on the river. Correct. And then he moved on to a bluff high above. Correct. And the updraft from the valley below absolutely made those fires hotter. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes. Okay. And in doing that, he also had a gas company, his own natural gas company. To fuel his plant. To fuel his plant. So then his ovens were able to stay at a consistent temperature instead of having to be fed with coal or wood or whatever. And actually, the Butler Gas Company over New Brighton, that was Mr. Fry's. Originally, Originally, it was his gas company. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he just kept thinking of all these ways to make it better and more productive and the best. 
So he got quite a name. And to put glass into perspective, you know, glass, when Fry was making glass, glass was like the plastic of its day. It could be molded and shaped and used for all kinds of industrial purposes. So it was a very important industrial ingredient. Yes. Right? And used in all kinds of industries. Here at the museum, you have a, a giant massive fuse was used in a an industrial setting and you have medical equipment and you have uh, lots of other things that were, you know, today are probably made out of, of plastic mm-hmm. or some other alloy. And my point is that glass was really important in its day just because we didn't have these modern materials. And so Fry really capitalized on, on that. Yes, you're correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, talk a little more about, about Fry. Uh, take us to um, up to the end of Fry glass. Well, the market started to get flooded. You have to understand Mr. Fry also made blanks that he sold to Libby and to a lot of other companies. So they started cutting his glass under their name. So then he decided to go into art glass. And, you know, and and he, he just kind of opened the business up to different things that hadn't been done yet. In fact, he made a piece called Radio Wave, and he got the idea by listening to KDKA over the radio, over the air. So in his mind, he made glass called radio wave that he thought would look like in the, in this, in the air. Sure, it has a, an aesthetic that he imagined to be radio wave. Yes, it's beautiful. So he eventually, you know, got into other fields. And then the, then the depression happened. And he went into receivership twice, I think once during the First World War, and then finally at the end, you know, the glass industry, as you said, plastics came out and different things. So the glass industry kind of petered out. And once he passed away, his son stayed active but he didn't have the pizzazz that his dad did. Mr. Fry was very, he was a very giving man. He was, uh, I, I, he built churches in this town. He built homes in this town. He was all about, he was on every board you can imagine for every bank and business. So he was a very involved person, but nobody was there to really follow his pizzazz. I can just, that's what I always assume of him is his pizzazz. Sure. Sure. And, you know, the full spectrum of fry glass is here at the museum, from the industrial work to the decorative work to the mundane, the most ornate. It's rather fascinating. And, I, and I'll say you give a great tour all about <laughs> fry glass. You are quite the expert on this. And I think anyone who comes to the museum here will be astounded, not only with the artifacts that are here, but of the fry glass story itself. And I have to be honest with you, I grew up not far from here, five miles from here. I had heard about fry glass, so uh, it wasn't like, you know, I didn't know of it, but I really didn't know anything about it. And I certainly didn't know the historical significance of fry glass. Not until I came here to this museum did I get it. Oh my goodness, fry glass is an amazing story, an amazing aspect of industrial history we have here in Beaver Valley. And so I think that your your museum here and its focus on fry glass does us all a great service in preserving that history that uh, you know people uh, really do not know. And so one of the things that I think we have to connect the dots on is that when we look around at all these buildings here, the churches and the gas company in New Brighton, <laughs> these are legacies mm-hmm. of, of fry and fry glass, you know, the company itself. So, Correct. So we are still living the vestiges of this um, this history of long ago, right? right? Which is no longer 
Uh, there's no longer fry glass. It's gone, right? Right. Done. Right. Yeah. Except for right here in your museum, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. So give yourselves a lot of credit for keeping this part of history alive. It's a fun part. I learn every day. And I thank God for the people that have more knowledge than I do of fry glass, who have been collecting longer than I have, that have helped educate me. And for that, I, I just, I couldn't be more thankful. Right. What's the oldest thing you have here? Oh, wow. Clothing. You have old clothing? Yes. Yes. I actually have clothing from the Irvin family, which there is a cemetery in Rochester called the Irvin. Um, the, but the Irvin family, I actually have a, a few pieces of clothing that were are well over 170 years old. Wow. Mm -hmm. Have you tried them on? No. <laughs> they want me to. The one has a corset in it. I don't think I can. <laughs> Yeah, that's a corset, right? That's yeah. historical just in itself. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's funny because my mannequins that I have here do not fit clothing from that back in 100 years ago. I actually have to put that clothing on youth or children's mannequins. Because people were smaller. Yeah, they were tiny. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. for sure. Very tiny. Yeah. Do you have people that give you stuff? Absolutely. They're cleaning out their closets and they Absolutely. say, hey, what are we going to do with this? And the, the funniest part is that most of the people that bring things here are the older people that say, I know when I die, I know what my family's going to do with this. I want you to keep it. So we gladly take it. If it's Rochester related or from Rochester, we take it. And that's where we get most of our donations. Or a family that maybe is, you know, moving away and they open a box and say, oh, look, here's grandma's fried glass. We don't really want this. What do we do with it? Oh, bring it here. I'll take it <laughs> in a heartbeat. Sure. sure. <laughs> yeah. So most of ours, a lot of our stuff is donated. We don't have the money to purchase things. Between you, me, and the fence post, if my husband knew half of what I spent, <laughs> we just acquired an olive stove works pot-bellied stove. So that was my excitement over the weekend. It's like a, a, a sugar addict getting a candy bar. <laughs> so, you know, and so those things, like for me, I consider them gifts. Yeah, you know, I just love your attitude around history. And I and I think, you know, if more people really took the time to understand history and expose themselves to history and to come to places like your museum here, they would find this excitement here too. You know, history in my book is never about the past. It's always about, yeah, that stuff and that happened long ago, but it's all what that means to today, yes. what that might even mean for the future. So history is always alive and well, even though we have 170-year-old dresses and, yes. and corsets and things like that. Your passion is very revealing, and, and I commend you on having that. And I Thank think anyone you. who comes will certainly be inspired to know more about history uh, because of that. It's awesome. Thank it's you. Just, just awesome. And I, do, how many visitors do you get a year? It depends. History Weekend, I can tell you that we were the third highest attended history place in Beaver County. Wow, awesome. So I was quite proud of ourselves. Awesome. We try to open as much as we can. We have regular hours, but it's strange. I do more private tours. Then we have our travel back in time once a month, 
And there are times that we fill a room and sometimes have to move to the auditorium because we have so many people. Our speakers are unique, they're fun, they're full of history. So we do get a nice flow of people here. But I still admit that my favorite thing is a private tour. So the museum is located at 350 Adams Street here in Rochester, and it's the old high school. It's the Rochester Borough office building, and you're on the top floor. We are on the top floor, correct. Yeah. Your number is 724-777-7697. Correct. For anybody who wants more information. And you're also on Facebook. Yes. Rochester Area Heritage Society. So, yeah. So we encourage everybody out there to check out the museum on Facebook. Come over to 350 Adams Street here in Rochester. Check it out. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll hear you on the Rochester Area Heritage Society podcast. Listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. You can hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there Better? you go. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure, you can hear yourself now. Okay. okay. Good, good, good. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and begin. Um, welcome to the inaugural episode of the. Ro- welcome to the. In- welcome to the inaugural. This is why I don't do live radio. <laughs> <laughs>